Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me today on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Robbie Paulson. Robbie is the managing director at K2 Sales Limited, a family-run business first founded in the 1980s, which manufactures high-quality farm machinery. Uh, Robbie, very warm welcome to yourself today, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure, Robbie, welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. And normally at this point in the show, we would dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation at the moment, I think it's appropriate that we start there uh, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But just how has it affected you and your business? Uh, Day one, um, hearing about the virus come out across the world, um, obviously raised um, a lot of awareness within the business um, and we followed it as closely as we could what was happening watching other countries lock down and um, seeing the effects it had on those countries and right from the from the get-go we, we made a few decisions quite quickly early on um, that we would we saw some of our biggest risks of uh, stock and materials that 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 get imported across the world. So we very quickly upped our, our orders um, to try and ensure supply because we were you know, very unsure on, on what was going to happen um, to the business, whether we could um, continue to run or whether we would be shut down. So it's one of the decisions that we made early on um, was to, to pull some early stock into the business to ensure that we could keep going if we were able to. Um, and following that, um, as, as more and more countries lockdown um, there was obviously a lot of nervousness um, and we kind of started to look at steps to um, you know avoid the risk of it getting into the factories um, from the from the start so we looked at risk assessments and um, just trying to understand how we are going to manage to stay open in this crisis and it was very nervous for us um, making decisions on whether we should be staying open um, but we were still seen um, uh, and needed to, to be open to be able to supply machinery for farmers um, that had machines on order. But not only that, spare parts for machines that were already out there running because you, know, you understand farmers were unable to stop uh, during this time. So we managed to make the decision that we would stop and I think the majority of people in our industry uh, made that decision as well. And we continue to manufacture. We put steps in place, um, social distancing, sanitization. Um, we had people working from home where possible. Um, we run two sites, so we, we had to limit travel between sites. Um, and we kind of had to identify the risks in the business. And we continued to go. And to this day, we still haven't stop for one day which I think we're fairly lucky in that um, the the more 
we see in the news at present. Um, there's quite a few uncertain times ahead. But I think the reality for our business is that COVID, albeit has, has been a huge challenge, we, we still face other challenges like weather in our industry, which probably caused more effects. I mean, our order books from the start, we were lucky going into a large order, order book and um, farmers probably did stop ordering. Um, but there is a bit of normality coming back now and probably a bit more confident. Um, so we are actually starting to see things pick up again. And do you think that some of the lockdown, um, well, the effects of the lockdown period could well be in place across the industry for some time to come? The reason I ask that question is because um, we're seeing um, a lot of steps that have come into place, such as hand sanitizer stations, social distancing, and a lot of other things to make work premises COVID secure. Um, but even when we have a working vaccine and the virus ultimately itself is no longer an issue, the anxiety that will be still persisting as a result of this pandemic could mean that certain things are in place for some time to come and there might be something of a COVID hangover as a result of that. Yeah, I think going forward, we're always going to, you know, I think it's probably changed um, the world in in day-to-day, you know, sanitise stations and face masks and gloves. Um, and, you know, the farming industry has, um, has seen diseases within the animals that obviously they have to take precautions day-to-day anyway on ensuring that those diseases aren't spread to their animals that affects their livelihood. So, yeah, I, I see it continuing. Um, for a point um but or i guess in the short term or we can hope that the vaccine does come through and and um we can you know get rid of this virus and we should move on now to discuss the subject of leadership just that little bit more broadly because after all that is why we're here on the uh, the program today i always like to ask the question to guests that come on to the show when you think of the word leader robbie what does that word actually mean to you? What do you feel that a leader's role actually is? I think it's about inspiring your team to achieve what you want to achieve as well um, and ensuring that they come with you along a journey um, to, to reach targets, goals, um, ambitions, whatever it is with, within that team. Um, you know, and it, it's about utilizing their benefits um, throughout the company and you know, being a leader is, is can be hard can be um, it can take its toll as well um, but I think it's, it's about pulling everyone together and ensuring that everyone achieves what they want to achieve Yes, and um, during this time, for sure, leaders have really had to step up and be figures of inspiration and motivation for their staff and also provide important reassurance just to keep things ticking over and keep people sort of in a good headspace during a time like this with so much anxiety and so much uncertainty. But when you are sort of providing all the inspiration, it can feel like a little bit of a lonely place at the top when there isn't anybody above you to consult or refer to, as it were. So when you, as a leader, need a little bit of direction for yourself and just need to take a step back where is it that you tend to look to to find your own inspiration (laughs) um i'm pretty lucky in that i love our industry and my background is farming um you know the countryside is what i love um so a bit of time there does me no harm 
Um, I'm also very lucky that within the business, I've got my directors that we talk very closely with. So, you know, day-to-day problems are very quickly shared and, and worked upon. Yes, I think it's important for sort of leaders to remember that they're not alone during a uh, time like this. And there are always other people that you can go and approach and um, that you can certainly go and learn from as well. Because leadership, especially during a uh, crisis, quite often it's going back to basics and it's trial and error, isn't it? It's a constant process of learning, trying things and developing fundamentally. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's every day there's challenges and I think this year is probably we've seen some of our biggest challenges you know Brexit as well and and Covid um, we, we bought a new factory last year mm. um, so we've had some of the biggest challenges we've ever, we're ever going to have um, with this year but I think you know the learnings we've also had from it and you know the staff that we have you know we, we wouldn't want we've got such a great team around us um, and everyone's pulled together especially in a time like this um, you're not always alone Exactly right. And um, it takes me on to very nicely a quote by Nelson Mandela, actually. He once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And it is one of the best pieces of advice in business, that isn't it? Surrounding yourself with good people, because that way, with a close-knit team around you of good people, when the chips are down, when it's a time of adversity and things are going against you a little bit, they really bring the best out in themselves, don't they? And really stand up and be counted. Yeah, and we're very lucky. We're we're a, we're a very we're still a small business, and we're growing very fast. And it does give opportunity to a lot of our members of staff. We've got a really good, strong. We've got a fairly young team. Um, really ambitious. Um, we've got a lot of support from our directors, and um, we've made some really big steps in the industry in the last sort of twelve eighteen months. And it really is just down to having a really good team around us. And um, I did want to just ask one thing um, as well, uh, Robbie, because um, there are a lot of young people out there, um, aspiring business leaders, entrepreneurs that may well be tuning into this and are probably downhearted looking at the effect that COVID-19 has had on the economy and what that's doing to their employment prospects. But as somebody who has been in business for some time now and uh, been successful, what message would you give them to really tell them to sort of pick their heads up and really get them on the road to success during this time? I think it's really just about getting yourself out there, um, getting involved in in, in what you love. Um, I, I'm passionate about what I do, and I'm passionate about the industry I'm in, which is you know is an advantage for myself. And I think it's just it, it's it's finding that niche that you really enjoy and just pursuing it and working hard at it. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed to not give up on your passions and to be persistent in chasing uh, the dream. Absolutely right. Um, I do want to talk about the future as well, because I am conscious that our time on the programme today is starting to draw to a close. We know that at least until March, judging by the Prime Minister's announcement uh, just a fortnight ago, um, we're going to have to keep adjusting to this new normal in the way that we live, in the way that we work and embracing those challenges. But over the course of the next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at K2 Sales? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Um, as I said earlier on, we, we, we purchased a new factory um, just over a year ago now. And um, our passion and our, our, you know, our drive to grow still continues, regardless of whether COVID is, is here or not. 
and um, we'll put every safety measure in, in place. But, you know, we're, we're changing the way we do business. Um, we're pushing more um, more on our social medias. We're focusing on digital strategy, virtual events. Um, and, and our push doesn't change. You know, our goals and our ambitions don't change. It's just going to be a different way of doing it and maybe just a little bit harder than we were hoping. Um, but that's not to stop us. It's great that there are such high ambitions at the uh, the business to succeed even amid all of the uncertainty. I think that um, is infectious, really, and it's something that people should really, of course, be uh, really listening to and buying into over the course of the year, the next uh, few weeks and months. And indeed, um, as we begin, begin to get an idea of what challenges are going to be looming onto the horizon, when, of course, we see how long we're going to be in this for and when the impact of Brexit does become clear, and we should find out more about that this month, incidentally, I think it would be wonderful Robbie to perhaps welcome you back onto our show at some point in the next year just to see how things are uh, coming along yeah no that'd be really nice it'd be really nice to come back and uh, let you know it's really good to talk and you know we're at challenging times at the minute and it's it's, I think it's good for everyone to understand what we're doing and, and how we still move forward with it Exactly. And that certainly is what the Leaders' Council is all about, really chronicling the realities of British leadership and giving authentic voices of British industry a voice in all corners of industry, for sure. Um, I have to say, Robbie, um, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company as well. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime. And hopefully there'll be some positive news to share in a few months. Perfect. Thank you very much, Scott. Cheers for your time. I'd also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning into this today. Do please take care of yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Robbie Polson, Managing Director at K2 Sales Limited, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Of course, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. Others, but he remains most well known for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. That, of course, came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be coming onto the programme to talk about some of the highlights of his career and the importance of robust leadership throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS. So Jeff will be joining us shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and 
goodness me, yeah, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I went up wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks. Uh, uh, making it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach. It's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, Ron Green was passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true we, in, in those uh, medieval days you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play you um, in our road in Greenway as it was called in Chelmsford 
we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves isn't playing with a world-class player in, within the squad and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, that we it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career, and I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.